When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by MailChimp. The people behind MailChimp appreciate a clear voice, an intentional tone, and just the right word. MailChimp, email marketing for everyone. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 32, titled The Burden of Being Right, wherein we locate the inner language scold in all of us and then shoot them with a BB gun. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. Yourself? You got a big day coming up. Yeah, yeah, a couple weeks, and I'll be a father. It's it's just such a scary thought to me, <laughs> a human being entrusted to you. But uh, I, I know Laura, and I'm, I'm sure the baby will be fine. Yeah, I'm not worried at all. So first off, uh, I got a couple of announcements. Very exciting. Lexicon Valley will soon be, we hope later this month, not just an audio podcast, but also a blog on Slate. We're creating a partnership with uh, the folks at Language Log, which is a long-running, fantastic blog about language. And we're going to feature a number of their posts every week. But also, we'd love other contributors. So if you're an author or an academic who writes about language, then by all means, send me a pitch at mike.volo at slate.com. I really want to have a variety of voices on the blog. Now, I said there were a couple of announcements in order to free up some time to get the blog off the ground and, frankly, so that I could take some paternity leave. This will be our last podcast, Bob, until probably October, I would say. Oh, Mike, I'm going to miss you. Well, I'm hoping you'll, you know, come by and see the baby. (laughs) (laughs) No? You know the episode of Larry David where his friends uh, redecorate the house and want to give him a house tour. And he's like, no, I get it. I know what a house looks like. (laughs) You've seen babies before. You know what? I will come to see your baby because uh, I love you and Laura, and I'm sure the baby will be just as simply adorable. All right. Today's episode comes with a disclaimer of sorts. When we started this podcast, Bob, I was very insistent, if you remember, that it not be about language peeves, right? I made the case that it's just too trite And language is far too interesting to dwell over and over on that. However, it is undeniable that prescriptive ideas about, you know, correctness or social desirability, that they course through many conversations about language and certainly through a number of episodes of Lexicon Valley. 
and talking about language as often as we do, we're confronted with the reality that we frequently judge other people silently, usually, but smugly and often very harshly by how they use words. Yeah, and even if we're not actually judging them, I think the most uh, liberal-minded linguist still probably feels that inner flinch of recognition of a, a poor usage, a strange construction, some uh, syntax that just doesn't quite scan. And irrespective of whether we feel contemptuous, we notice the dissonance and, and, and react to it. Yeah, and along those lines, Bob, you told me about a kind of internal conflict that you're experiencing that led to this episode. It's an ongoing conflict. In general, I absolutely buy into yours and I guess the Lexington Con Valley's institutional philosophy of a living language, uh, one that is not in any way immutable and prone to all sorts of change, even if it seems dissonant in the short term, right? But I still do a lot of flinching. So it makes me think that I haven't fully internalized the show's ethic. Somehow viscerally, I still react in ways that are just a little more school marmish than I'd like for them to be. All right. So we're going to do something on this episode that we've never expressly done before and may never do again, which is to talk about a few things that bother us with the deeper ambition, I hope, of getting at the why. You know, why do we care so much about how other people use or abuse the language? And in the second half of the podcast, we'll talk to a linguist who teaches at Columbia University. His name is John McWhorter, and he's written a lot about language evolution and language change, and he will, I hope, put this in some perspective for us. So with that, I will ask you, Bob, a question I never thought I would ask you on this show. What annoys you? Present company excluded. <laughs> yeah, let me be more specific. What annoys you <laughs> about the way people use language? Alas, many things still to this day, despite the new linguistically liberal me. But I, I guess the thing that I just cannot accept is the fact that the word literally <laughs> has come to mean its opposite, that the dictionary now accepts the notion that literally to mean figuratively is somehow correct. You know, Mike, um, I literally jumped out of my skin. No, you didn't literally do anything of the sort. So to me, the accepting literally to mean figuratively, it's like somehow accepting the word yes to mean no. Well, Bob, I came armed with a little bit of research. There are a number of usage dictionaries, including Merriam-Webster's, which weigh in on this. The L volume of the Oxford English Dictionary, which was published in 1903, already contained at that time a usage note attached to the word literally, and it read as follows. Now often improperly used to indicate that some conventional metaphorical or hyperbolical phrase is to be taken in the strongest admissible sense. And the OED gives a citation for this from 1863. It's of an English actress named Fanny Kemble, who wrote, For the last four years, I literally coined money. Hmm. Now, she was, I think, very successful, and that's what she meant. Of course, maybe she had a mint, and she was, in fact, coining wait, money. Wait, 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 wait. 150 years ago, someone was misusing literally in this way? Well, you could literally knock me over with a feather. That's... <laughs> 
That is a revelation. Wait, wait, I'm not done. I am literally going to blow your mind. (laughs) (laughs) So throughout the 20th century, a number of language experts were complaining about this, including Henry Fowler himself, you know, the early 20th century language maven that's still regarded to this day as the capo di tutti capi of language experts. And in 1980, this is one of my favorite examples from the language books. In 1980, a journalism professor named Roy Copperwood, who wrote some usage manuals, said, seldom is the word employed in its exact sense, which is to the letter, precisely as stated. For example, the actor was literally floating on applause. The word wanted was figuratively, unless levitation occurred. (laughs) Right. For that sentence to satisfy me, there would have to have been actual levitation. That's correct. So, Bob, you were expressing surprise that this dates back to 1863. There's actually an example from Dickens, from Nicholas Nickleby, from 1839. Lift him out, said Squeers, after he had literally feasted his eyes in silence upon the culprit. Now, that, I think, also fits your criteria for a misuse of literally, right? Charles Dickens, 1839. You know, I I guess this is a really good example of uh, recency fallacy, right? I just thought this was something that had evolved, mutated, metastasized in my lifetime. All right. Well, so what to do about it, right? Here's what Merriam-Webster suggests. And I think this is actually a really helpful way to think about it. The point to be made here, they write, is that it is hyperbolic and hyperbole requires care in handling. Is it necessary or even useful to add an intensifier like literally to a well-established metaphorical use of a word or phrase? Will the use add the desired emphasis without calling undue attention to itself? Or will the older senses of literally intrude upon the reader's awareness and render the figure ludicrous? They suggest, well, you have to judge for yourself. I want to give you a couple of examples. One, which I think does not work, is a kind of bad use of the figurative literal, and one which I think is actually pretty good. So this is from Jean Stafford. She was a 20th century novelist and short story writer. Even Muff did not miss our periods of companionship, because about that time she grew up and started having literally millions of kittens. Now, that's just bad, I think. It really calls attention to itself because you don't have millions of kittens. It's just That is one feckin' cat. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, keep in mind, this is a usage that Fitzgerald used in The Great Gatsby. Uh, Nabokov used it. James Joyce used it in Dubliners. One of the best uses of it, I think, is from Thackeray. Yet the wretch, absorbed in his victuals and naturally of an unutterable dullness, did not make a single remark during dinner, whereas I literally blazed with wit. I think that's a really nice use of it. Well, you know, for me, he would have actually had to have been illuminated, glowing ember-like to make that sentence scan. But I agree it's not as nakedly stupid as the one million kitten cat. I, You know, I'll give you that one. Okay, we'll bring it up with McWhorter later on. But now it's my turn. I'm going to give you an example of something that really drives me crazy, and I'm not even really sure why. So you have to help me figure that out. I was reading E! Online recently. It's the entertainment website. And I was reading it because I wanted to know more about this incident that happened a month and a half ago or so in which Justin Bieber supposedly uh, disparaged Bill Clinton. Don't ask me why I wanted to know about this incident. That's not important. I just did. 
So here's a paragraph from the article that sums up what happened. After getting caught on video urinating in a mop bucket and spraying cleaning fluid onto a picture of Bill Clinton while saying, fuck Bill Clinton, the 19-year-old actually spoke to the former U.S. president today and apologized for his actions. So now the author of this article, excuse me, authors, not sure why it took two people to write this, uh, they go on to point out that Bieber said he was sorry and that Clinton was very gracious. He told Bieber, don't worry about it, just focus on the good that you could do in the world. And then comes the following observation, quote, They say you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. And at least the Biebs was left with an omelet today. What? Do you see my problem here? Um, no. <laughs> okay, let's be unequivocal about this. In order to make an omelet, you must, you must destroy eggs, right? Step one, mm-hmm. break eggs. It's in every mm-hmm. cookbook. Mm-hmm. What is it that the Biebs had to destroy, and what exactly is the omelet that resulted? That idiom does not comport with the story in any way. Mike, this, it's so straightforward. In the Bieber case, the egg-breaking is making him fool of himself with the ad hominem attack on the president and you know, getting called on it. And the omelet is the relationship he develops with the president and the inspiration to use his celebrity to do great things. What's the what's your beef? That's like every cloud has a silver lining or something. That's not you have to break some eggs in order to make an omelet. Because when you break the eggs, you know that something good is going to result from this. He didn't know that he was going to be able to call the president. And I, I don't know if they have a friendship now. I mean, and who knows how inspired he was. He's probably going to continue to do bad things like pissing in mop buckets. But the point is, you break eggs with the knowledge that something good will come of it, right? Which you can't do without breaking the eggs first. Aha. Uh-huh. So your quibble here is, in the Bieber example, the lack of premeditation. Is that it? That's part of it. I, but I don't think that you're seeing the big picture here. I don't think you're seeing the forest for the trees. <laughs> And I think that one of us is extremely obtuse, and I'm pretty sure it isn't me. Okay, well, let's just assume that I'm right, and, you know, please, listeners, let us know. But why does it make me so mad? Uh Aha, and that's the whole point of this. Once again, this was not intended to be the exercise which we've always promised we wouldn't engage in, just a a scold fest. No, we are trying to understand and get in touch with our own irritation and figure out why that trumps our actual philosophy about language. Why do we still have these visceral reactions to what we perceive to be a a bad usage? That's why we're having this conversation. A what? Yes, indeed. But as long as I'm surrendering to my worst impulses here, I'm going to give you another one. Okay, sure. Go ahead, Mike. Why not just let it all out? Let it all out. Yeah, it's like you opened the floodgates. (laughs) In general, I disdain the kind of bureaucratic office jargon. I think of it generally as applying to the workplace, but more specifically maybe to people who work in marketing, perhaps. The one phrase, I mean, I could tolerate a lot of them. I know that you don't like leverage. You think that is particularly insidious. As a verb. As a verb, right. I think it has insinuated itself into the language such that I don't really even notice it anymore. But the phrase that I do notice a lot is, 
going forward or on a going forward basis? Going forward being a classic piece of business jargon because later clearly isn't sufficient uh, (laughs) of a vocabulary word. But on a going forward basis, just abject self-parody. Yeah, and and a journalist in Britain, uh, her name is Lucy Kellaway, wrote a column about this some years ago, and I think really identified what is so horrible about this phrase. First of all, it's almost always redundant, right? But she takes it a little bit further. She says that another problem with it, and I'll quote from her, is that going forward seems to gesture confidently towards the future, but is utterly vague on timing. Worse still, the phrase conveys the cheesy and misplaced idea that we are on a purposeful journey to a better place. In fact, the future comes whether you like it or not, with no effort from us. And in terms of progress, history has confirmed that the future can be a lot worse than the present. Yeah, what she said. Yeah, exactly. Now, she tried to trace the phrase, and as far as she could tell, it goes back to the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. I'm so glad you didn't say Dickens. I had this, <laughs> I had this fear suddenly bubble up from my heart, literally bubble up from my heart, that uh, you were going to say this was in Oliver Twist. <laughs> no, but I mean, the SEC is precisely that kind of bureaucratic hall of power in which a phrase like this, you would imagine, could originate. Yeah, bureaucratic hall of power, linguistic hall of mirrors, yes. (laughs) Exactly. So I think this woman, Lucy Kellaway, really nailed it. She really got at what bothers me about this phrase. But an even more concise distillation I found in a Dilbert comic strip, of all places. (laughs) Well, that was the genius of Scott Adams, right? To pop the bubble of pretension over business culture. Yeah, exactly. So in the first panel, uh, Dilbert's boss, who's that guy with the pointy hair, looks kind of like devil's horns. He says to Dilbert, I suggest that you deal with this issue on a going forward basis. And then Dilbert says, thanks for ruling out time travel. You're usually not that helpful. (laughs) It's just brilliant. Yeah. All right. Well, as we mentioned earlier, we're going to have a linguistic Sherpa with us on the second half of this podcast, who's going to tell us that the omelet idiom and on a going forward basis are objectively horrible and wrong and that literally and all the other abuses of the language are to be thought of with grace and good humor and the idea that language evolves in mind. (laughs) (laughs) But first... You are are not only a closet scold, but as it turns out, a liar. (laughs) But first we need to mention our sponsor... Uh, this week, which is MailChimp. MailChimp helps more than 3 million people design and send email marketing campaigns and will even help you market on social media. If you have a newsletter with fewer than 2,000 subscribers, you can send up to 12,000 emails a month for free with no contract and no credit card required. To read more about the company and the services they provide, go to MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better email. Okay, as I mentioned, John McWhorter joins us now. McWhorter is a linguist. He teaches at Columbia University and has written a number of books about language. One of my personal favorites is one that he wrote a few years ago. It's called Our Magnificent Bastard Tongue, The Untold History of English. John, thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure. You're playing the role of our rabbi in this because (laughs) we need some, uh, I think what it comes down to is spiritual guidance. I'll try my best. And I think you should start things off, Bob. Explain again briefly for John this conflict you're wrestling with as a result of 30-plus episodes of this show, Lexicon Valley. 
Lexicon Valley isn't a show. It's a, it's a personal journey for me. And when I started it, I, I don't know if I leaned toward this intellectually, but my instincts were very much those of a scold prescriptivist, pedantic, uh, easily irritated. And I wouldn't say I was a classic persnickety jerk, but I had, you know, elements of that in my in my linguistic worldview, right? And I think if Lexicon Valley has done anything for me, apart from making me literally hundreds of dollars, <laughs> it's made me uh, more open-minded. It's made me really internalize the idea that the language is a living one and that change is part of the deal. And sometimes the change includes constructions and vocabulary that hitherto had been just irritants, right? And yet, John, and yet, Mm -hmm. every now and then, I will hear something that literally makes my brain explode. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean... The phrase literally makes my brain explode, the, the completely incorrect opposite use of the word literally to convey the idea figuratively. And it, in those moments, I just become the worst kind of obnoxious schoolmarm. And, and unfortunately, that's not the only thing on my list. Right. Uh, you know, this isn't about sharing all my pet peeves, of which there is a significant number. See? See, see what I did there? But it's about me coming to terms with this conflict. I, I don't know what to do. Right. And the basic truth to it is that we will never be rid of visceral feelings about certain words or linguistic constructions as part of being human because we're all aesthetic creatures as well as creatures who've been taught that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And as a linguist, I certainly am in the camp who says that there is no such thing as a mentally coherent person using what could scientifically be called bad, improper, or illogical grammar. The whole argument simply doesn't make sense. And yet, there are things people say that drive me crazy in the same way as that use of literally drives you. For me, one of them is something quite innocent that's now virtually universal. Can I get a... I hear people saying that at restaurants, for example. Can I get a Coke or something like that? To me, that sounds vulgar. It sounds a little bit pushy. Not only pushy, but then also at the same time vaguely oblique. Would it be possible that I obtain a... For me, that has always been a very irritating expression. I would prefer, I'll take a, or may I have a. So not only does it break the may-can rule, it's kind of (laughs) passive-aggressive. Exactly. Can I get... It really just drives me crazy. But I know that it drives me crazy in the same way as I don't particularly like the taste of oranges. It's not that oranges are wrong, it's just that... Some random aspect of my wiring makes me respond to that one. Or the use of veggies with somebody who is over the age of about three. Somehow veggies has jumped the rails, and people talk about, well, we're going to have steak, and we're going to have rice, and then, well, I've got some veggies in the refrigerator. That makes me want to go out and shoot somebody with a BB gun. I'm grateful it does not rise to the level of AK-47. <laughs> So those things are not going to go away. I don't think that we're ever going to be free of our preferences. But the thing is, all of these things are like fashions. They come and they go. We have certain feelings about them. They're always changing, but it's hard to say that what people were wearing in 1870 or 1970, well, you could say about 1970, but 1870 was wrong. It wasn't wrong the way people were dressing in 1983. It was just different. 
Mm. <laughs> maybe that's not the best. Example. I think maybe objectively morally wrong in the case of what people were wearing in 1983. I, I think you've chosen a poor example. But, you know, John, it's not just the word wrong that people use to describe usages that they don't like. And I, I want to give you an example from my own life. When my wife and I were first dating, she called me one day and asked where I was. I said, oh, I'm online at the grocery store. She said, really? Is there a line on the floor and you're standing on that line? You know, now, my wife is from the D.C. area. In D.C., people say, I'm in line. Right. I grew up outside of New York. There we say online. What I'm getting at here is that she, and she doesn't take this very seriously, of course, but she had somehow convinced herself that her idiom was more logical mm-hmm. than mine. And I wonder, is it a mistake to think about language in terms of logic or rationality or some idea about what makes sense and what doesn't, as if it were mathematics? It is wrong to think of language that way for the simple reason that there has never existed any human language that would submit to that kind of logical analysis completely. We think that language ought to make sense like mathematics. It would be nice if it did, I suppose. But it just never has. And the fact that it never has indicates that any language used by human beings in the real world never could. And so, for example, if we were educated people right here in the New York area in the late 1800s, we would be told by grammarians with three names that it didn't make sense to say the first two people. We were supposed to say the two first people because the idea was that the first two people would only make sense if you were dealing with a group that was divided into twos, so that the first two would mean the first pair. But if you just mean persons one and persons two in a big clump of people composed of nine, then you're supposed to say the two first. People would make a case for that. And it makes a certain sense, but we look back now and we think that they really should have been devoting their time to other things. <laughs> Rabbi McWhorter, with all due respect, and I understand you gave us kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card by calling our residual irritation an aesthetic issue as opposed to, I guess, an authoritarian streak, right? Mm-hmm. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. But come on, literally and figuratively. The Mm -hmm. words are opposites. The opposite has come to take the meaning of its opposite. Isn't that as close to being mathematically wrong as linguistics can get us? Well, the way that one has to look at literally, and there's a reason why one has to, is that its meaning has changed, and therefore it now has two meanings. One of them is literally from a word meaning letter, as in word for word, But it's also developed this new meaning, which is as this intensifier, which is this kind of sentential adverb. And that happens all the time with words. They start out with one meaning, and then they develop another one. And there's a question as to whether the new meaning makes sense in comparison to what the first meaning was. But if we don't like literally, then what about actually? You say, well, actually, there are going to be some veggies in the freezer. We don't mean by that that the veggies are going to exist in actuality. We would have in about 1500, but it's changed. I'm certainly going to go down the steps. doesn't mean that you're going to go down the steps with an air of certainty about you. (laughs) And literally has taken that same pathway. And so certainly can mean that you think of yourself as being on the right track, but it also 
is this intensifier of your commitment to the proposition. Literally is like that. So now there are two literallys, and we have to just let the idea go that its original meaning is somehow the meaning. You know what I mean? Yeah, which I think gets at this idea that it's a mistake to view language as this pure science system that is supposed to make sense. Mm -hmm. Mathematical logic is something that human beings crafted. It's something counterintuitive. It's hard to wrap our minds around because it's not what happens with systems that develop organically in us, either biologically or in terms of speech. So yeah, the idea that we're trying to keep our language within that kind of cage is always a failure because it's never been in it. Well, you also have to remember, now you're a much younger man than I, Mike, as you constantly remind me, but when I went to school, language was taught almost moralistically. I mean, there was a very clear right and a very clear wrong, and if you transgressed, you were a lesser person. And if you used kid, you, you, know, you faced the wrath of a teacher saying a kid is a goat and you mean child, you know, and if you say can instead of may, you're diminished. And so when you grow up in that kind of restrictive milieu, isn't it just natural that you carry the scolding with you in, into deep later life, such as myself? One of the hardest things about that is to understand that a person is not of lesser mental capacity if they use can rather than may in certain situations is to have to face the fact that your possibly beloved teachers were not quite right. And that's not something that any of us want to do. Those teachers are swathed in the haze of memory, and they did many wonderful things for us, and they were right about 99.5% of what they taught you. But when it comes to that school-marmish, hand-smacking sense of what linguists call prescriptivism, in that, I hate to say that they, they were misinformed or there are different ways of looking at it that they weren't in a position to give. And that is a very hard thing to let go of. I remember a girlfriend I had where I was explaining why technically it is not logically wrong to say Billy and me went to the store. And, of course, that's a whole other story. And no matter how carefully I explained it, and it was gently and with humor, and then she read something I wrote about it, she could only say, all I know is that I was taught that X, Y, Z. All I know is that I was taught, and I remember thinking, yeah, it's hard to get beyond that vision of yourself as having been taught something, especially if you were good at it and you handed in your paper and you did it right. Nobody wants to have all of that deconstructed. You threatened what she thought she knew about reality. And she prided herself on it also. She learned these things, which are rather counterintuitive, often because people tend not to observe them. And then you're saying, no, what you work so hard to do is wrong. I've said before that it's like telling somebody it's okay to chew with their mouth open. It's counterintuitive to chew with your mouth closed. I think people naturally want to smack, but we learn very early on, lips together, teeth apart. Imagine somebody saying, no, it's okay to just you know, chew with your mouth open. It, you'd resent it because we work so hard on our table manners. I think it's the same thing with blackboard grammar rules. There's another aspect of this I want to ask you about, and that is... The guilty pleasure of hearing somebody else's error so that you can feel superior. <laughs> I just remembered the moment when, when some bureaucrat was uh, lecturing a, a newsroom on something or other. When he was finished, he said, uh, if you need me, you can write me or you can, we can telephonically communicate. 
Blow hard. You blow hard. Telephonically communicate. You mean pick up the phone, give you a call? And, you know, I I loved the moment of thinking that he was a not only pompous, but not terribly bright, right? So I guess that's on me. In the whole scolding dynamic, how big is this this sense of superiority? It's a way of feeling superior that has a lot of sanction in society. I also think that it's one of the last remaining overt forms of classism, too. We don't like to talk about class, but that's a way of making yourself feel superior to people who often just haven't had the kind of education that allows them to fake using these blackboard grammar rules. All these things are very natural. I would say that in terms of certain spelling issues, even though I think we all know that the English spelling system is ridiculous and arbitrary, when I read in an email somebody who does that, your with an apostrophe versus the word your, it's with or without an apostrophe makes that confusion, to me there is a feeling of superiority that I get. I immediately think, wow, this person isn't as familiar with print, they haven't learned that rule, and it feels a little bit good, and then I internally smack myself. But it's almost impossible not to do it because you know we all kind of like to feel superior sometimes. My favorite moment of linguistic schadenfreude is when I catch somebody using language in a way to suggest that they're superior, (laughs) enabling me to conclude that, no, no, au contraire, it is I who am superior. (laughs) And I I plucked this one off the internet for you, John. It it was from a blog entry. I won't mention who wrote it. And he says, uh, the greatest testament against the strategic wisdom of this scheme from a counterintelligence perspective is the erstwhile Mr. Edward Snowden. And, uh, you know, one says, erstwhile? What, what makes him it? erstwhile? Yeah. And this is an adjective that has come to be just plopped in by people trying to make an impression on you, clearly without <laughs> any notion that it just simply means formally. Right. You know, and I mean, they're aware do you draw the line cases. That's a misuse. I would not look at something like that and say, well, I guess the meaning is changing. The community has to be embracing these changes to the extent that that is not regular in any sense. That's just somebody tossing in a formal-sounding word. BB gun, (laughs) AK-47. For me, that would be a water pistol, but still. (laughs) And I think he's a pioneer. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) You never know. John, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Okay, Bob, I'm going to leave you with the following. Let this be a cautionary tale. I asked Laura for a language peeve. And if I gave you, I don't know, a thousand guesses, I don't think you would land on her first answer. She finds it troubling that many people no longer know the all-important distinction between the M-dash and the N-dash. Wait a second, Mike. The (laughs) M-dash? Who are you married to? Captain Quig? Nobody's that tightly wound. (laughs) Yeah, you know, she told me she explained the difference to one of her students at Georgetown Law School because he used one of them wrong, I guess, and he laughed at her. (laughs) (laughs) And rightfully so. (laughs) All right, well, if you want to laugh at us uh, in print, not sure how you do that, but you can email us at slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. That's slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe to our feed on iTunes. You can find all of our past episodes at slate.com slash lexicon valley. I want to thank the great John McWhorter. He is the author of a number of books, including What Language Is. 
And I want to thank Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. All right, Mikey. We done here? Yeah, yeah. We're done for a month or two. Well, have yourself a merry little hiatus and have yourself a beautiful little baby. Thanks, Bob. Later, Gator. Gator.